When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back into the Nick Bob Podcast. I am taping this. It is Wednesday night. It's a, it's late. I'm taping this late. I got the kids down. Uh, the three kids are in bed, and I'm down in my pod room. It's Wednesday. It's May 10th. It's uh, almost 10 o'clock at night, uh, and I, I got four topics on my brain, and I'm going to lay it all out for you. I'm going to talk about Arthur Kaluma and Creighton. Uh, I had some thoughts on Jeff Sims and now his importance for Matt Rule as Nebraska gets this thing off the ground in the the rule era. Got some thoughts on Casey Thompson and his decision to head to Florida Atlantic and Matt Rule continuing to praise the offensive line. That's all on uh, on the menu for today. But let's start with Kaluma because that news broke uh, in, in the afternoon of Wednesday, May 10th. So Kaluma has uh, entered the transfer portal. Now, Kaluma has also entered the NBA draft, and he's going through that process. In fact, he's headed to the NBA draft combine next week. So any way you slice it, Arthur Kaluma is officially gone and will no longer be a Creighton Blue Jay. My take is not surprised. If you've listened to me over the last month and a half, I never was expecting Arthur Kaluma to come back to Creighton. I just I wasn't. That wasn't my read. That wasn't kind of what I'd been hearing. Uh, that was never my sense on the situation with Kaluma as it pertains to next year and him being in Omaha. Now I will say, I the 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 transfer portal thing I wasn't totally sure on. I'd heard some rumblings on that, but I was certainly expecting him to not return to Creighton in one way, shape, or form. And listen, I'm 99% sure that Creighton, the the staff, everyone over there. They've been preparing for this and prepare, have been prepared for this for a while. In, in some ways, the fact that Creighton first that, that Creighton signed Jonathan Lawson out of Memphis, the transfer last week, to put them at 14 scholarships, which is one over the limit of 13, is probably evidence that Creighton was expecting Arthur Kaluma to be gone. Right? Like they they were over the scholarship limit. And I think they knew, okay, Kaluma's going to – he's not going to be here. That's going to open up a scholarship. So I guess I I say that to say that this news isn't really surprising to anyone who's been around Creighton over the last month or so. My my guess is that Kaluma – that he he goes pro. I I think he's going to stay in the draft. I'm not sure if he'll get drafted. But I, I've been saying this for a month and a half now. He's struck me as someone that's just ready to get his professional basketball career started. I think he thinks he's an NBA guy and he's ready to attack that and begin his professional career. You know, like now for me, do I I I don't I don't necessarily think he's he's ready for the NBA at this moment. Uh but listen, does he he fits the profile, six seven, long, versatile pretty good athlete, still pretty young. I could see I could see a team taking a chance on him. I could. 
I really could. So my thing is, I think he's going to stay in the draft. I think he's going to, I think he's going to start his pro career. I think he's a guy that you know he can maybe sign a two-way contract or he's in the G League next year. Heck, maybe he he kills it in the combine. He kills it in some workouts. He gets drafted. And he's on a roster next year. I don't know. But for me, with this news, I never really in my mind was planning on him coming back next year. I just wasn't. Pretty sure his best friend on the team was Ryan Nemhard as well. So that that certainly probably didn't help, right? When you kind of already are probably leaning that way and then your your best friend on the team, he dips out and he goes in the transfer portal, certainly it continues to nudge you in that direction. But I just I just have always gotten the sense that he's ready to turn the page, he's ready to attack his pro career. I, I think you know, my read on him entering the transfer portal, I think he's entering the portal to just give himself as many options as possible. Personally, I don't, my guess is I don't think he's going to be playing college basketball next year. I, I, I don't, I don't think I'm going to turn on the, you know, the, the, the TV during, during the winter next year and watching Kaluma playing in the PAC 12 or the SEC or the ACC. I just don't, I don't, I don't, that's not, that's not my guess. That's not my read, but I mean, crazier things have happened. So we'll see. So now that. Two starters on Creighton's team have entered the portal, and they aren't returning, obviously, in, in Nemhard and Kaluma. And, you know, for me, like, maybe it's because there, there, was, there, there wasn't the shock value and the shock element of it with Nemhard as I, I got the news and heard about it, as, as it's way different than, than Kaluma as I was kind of expecting it. Uh, but Ryan Nemhard's situation just felt way different to me. That's why I feel like the tone of of me discussing another sophomore starter entering the portal just is totally different for me. I, I was stunned, and I still think it's borderline incomprehensible that Ryan Nemhard left Creighton and transferred. With Kaluma, I don't I don't really feel that way. Like. Now, I mean, I think if, if he if I knew he wasn't going to go pro, if he if he's not going through the draft process, and he was truthfully just transferring to go play somewhere else, I would be a little head scratched. Like I think a lot of the same things could apply of what you think about Nemhard and his decision with Kaluma, but not completely either. But uh, so I'm just not as stunned at all with Kaluma's decision. Number one, he's got real NBA potential. He's got real NBA draft potential which is still where I think he'll be next year. And number two, if I'm being real honest, Kaluma never felt like he was a great or perfect fit for Creighton's system and style. And that's not not meant to be a shot at Kaluma, but every style is different, right? Every system and program, they're going to value certain things and they're going to emphasize certain things, right? Like San Diego State's system and style and brand is different than Creighton's. And their players are going to, you know, fit accordingly, right? Like Jaden Ledee at the power forward for uh, for San Diego State wouldn't really fit at Creighton. That doesn't mean Ledee's not a good player, and it doesn't mean that whoever's, you know, at the, at the power forward spot for Creighton's not a good player, right? I'm just talking about systems and fit. But I always felt like he was never a perfect fit for Creighton's system and style. Like, he's an ISO player. Uh, he's not a great shooter. And he's a little bit of a ball stopper. Like, the ball sticks in his hands. And Creighton is a ball movement team. 
Like the amount of times the ball would be like, it would be swing, swing, penetration, kick, swing, and all of a sudden it's Kaluma's hand and it's slow shot fake, jab, jab, slow shot fake, dribble, 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 turn your back to your guy, peck, dribble, peck, dribble, shimmy, shake. Like that's not how Creighton plays, but that's how Kaluma plays. So there always was a little bit of this tug and pull, I think, between, you know, I think Greg McDermott recognized that Kaluma has such amazing talent that you got to kind of let him do his thing because he's really good at it, but you also got to try to get him to play within the confines and the structure of how Creighton's system operates. And I think that was a little bit of a, a tug, a, a battle at times. But Creighton's a ball movement team that they, they value three-point shooting, and the you know Kaluma's not a great three point shooter. He's and he's not a ball mover. He's a ball stopper. So he just never felt like a perfect fit either. Whereas if we're comparing it to Nemhard, like Nemhard felt like a really good fit. Plays fast, ball moves, right? Like so that's when I talked about where like I, it's incomprehensible with Nemhard. It's like dude was running the team, leading the team in minutes, and playing in a system that fits his skill set perfectly. I don't necessarily feel like that with Kaluma. That doesn't mean that he doesn't have value. He definitely has value. Because I don't want to sit here and act like Kaluma wasn't a good player. He was. He was a big body. He was athletic. He was. He played above the rim. I mean, Creighton's going to miss his athleticism big time. I mean, I would say that, you know, Creighton wasn't a very athletic team. And they just lost their best overall athlete in Kaluma. And I actually thought Kaluma played pretty well in the second halves of all four NCAA tournament games this year. And then even if you want to go back to his freshman year, he balled out against Kansas in the second round of the NCAA tournament. So, like, in in the NCAA tournaments, Kaluma's played pretty good. So his his departure certainly hurts. But I don't think it's, like, devastating for Creighton. I'm not sitting here, like, you know, staring out my window, like, how is Creighton going to figure this out? No, I mean, listen. The good news is, is that Creighton is loaded with options at the four spot on next year's roster. Now, none of them are are as proven as Arthur Kaluma, and none of them are at least right now are maybe as talented as Arthur Kaluma, but that doesn't mean those other options aren't guys that could go in there and contribute. I mean, they got Isaac Trout, Mason Miller, Jason Green, and if need be, I, I think they could slide Shireman to the four as well because Shireman's a, a – amazing defensive rebounder and he's and he's tough like he'll fight so Greg McDermott has options to work with and we'll we'll see who steps up but overall I, I you know with the news I wasn't surprised neither was Creighton if anybody's trying to paint it any other way they're lying to you this move, this decision lands way different than Ryan Nemhard transferring to me. So if you're trying to lump those two things together, I, I just don't think that's totally fair or right. My guess is Arthur Kaluma is playing professional basketball next year. He's not playing college basketball next year. That's my guess. And Creighton's got some options now to try to fill that spot. And to, to kind of finish the thought, you know, now that both Nemhard and Kaluma are officially not going to be playing for Creighton next year, it is interesting to size up next year's starting five or maybe top seven or eight rotation guys in comparison to what it could have been and what it was this last year, right? Because what's what's tough is, you know, like I just said, I thought Creighton wasn't overly athletic. 
And I could argue that Creighton just lost their two most athletic players in Nemhard and Kaluma. I mean, Nemhard is a good athlete. He could he could rise up and punch on you in, in traffic. He's fast. And then we saw, I mean, Kaluma could play above the rim. And the reality is if you slide Stephen Ashworth in for Ryan Nemhard and maybe Trout or something like that for Kaluma, you are less athletic in both spots now. You just are. So it was going to be hard to find anyone to replace that raw athleticism, and that though that's not right. It's not on the roster right now, but that doesn't mean that it, you know just because okay the athleticism takes a hit for an already just okay athletically team that doesn't. I mean basketball is still a game of skill, and Creighton is athletic enough. But overall, if Creighton returns Trey Alexander and Ryan Kalkbrenner, let's say both guys come back and the starting five is Stephen Ashworth, Trey Alexander, Baylor Shireman, let's throw Trout in at the four, and Kalkbrenner, that's a pretty good five. Now, is that five better than last year's starting five of Nemhard, Alexander, Shireman, Kaluma, and Kalkbrenner? I don't know. I think they're just different. Now, I, in, in the spirit of fairness, like Stephen Ashworth still has, I mean, he's got to prove it at this level, right? Not that the Mountain West is like, you know, playing in the, in, in the Southland Conference or something like that, or the Big Sky Conference or something like that. I mean, the Mountain West Conference is, I mean, if, if, if it's not a high major conference, it's, it's definitely, it's, it's somewhere in between, you know, there's like, there's, there's medium and medium well and like medium plus with like your stakes or something like that. Like that's the Mountain West. It's not medium. It's not medium well. It's somewhere in between those two. But the Astros still has got to prove it at this level though. I mean, it is a step up. Now, maybe he'll be like Sule Boom was for Xavier. He came from UTEP to Xavier and, and was awesome for Steam All Big East. I mean, so maybe he's like that. Of course, there are a bunch of other examples of guys that transfer up a level in terms of conferences and struggle a little bit. So we'll see. I happen to think Stephen Ashworth will be fine. I think that his his elite skill of shooting is going to translate. But, you know, he's got to prove it to a certain degree. And so does someone like Trout, right? Like, Trout's never scored a real a point in Division One basketball because he redshirted last year at, at Virginia. You know, and and so he's got to prove it, as does your other options as well. Mason Miller, yes, he played, but can he be a starting foreman? There's a big difference between starting compared to being a, a spotty 10, 15-minute bench guy, right? You could throw Mason Miller out there, run a little crackback play for him, see if he makes it, and if he doesn't, you can just get him out and say, well, Mason done got to go in the night. Go back with Kaluma. Well, that's not how it works if you're the, the guy. Jason Green, another option at the four. I mean, he's in the same boat as Trout. He redshirted last year. Maybe could could Lawson, the Memphis transfer, or Shireman slide over and play some four and you play small ball? Maybe. Maybe. Who knows? So I think Creighton is just a little different now. And I, I think they'll play a little different. Ashworth is different than Nemhard. Whoever Creighton puts at the four will be different than Kaluma. So they're just going to be a different team. And what makes this interesting is, and maybe even unsettling for some people, is you know Creighton fans and we, we being just people that watch and consume the team, media, whoever, 
they're, they're just been they were they got used to having the same core group together, right? The three the three Trey Alexander, Nemhard, Kaluma, and Kalkbrenner, right? You know, it, it used to having that same core together, and even at one point, we're entertaining the idea of the entire starting five coming back. So to now have two starters and maybe more, who knows what happens over the next couple of weeks with the draft? It just feels way different because everyone went from knowing exactly what things would look like for Creighton in terms of their starting five to having some questions. And they are legitimate questions. But all I know is this. If Creighton brings back Trey Alexander and Ryan Kalkbrenner, they're going to be just fine. They're going to be just fine. Period. One final Kaluma thought. I, I want to say the same thing I said about Nemhard when, when he left when I was d- doing the pod on that. Uh, ma- major salute to, to Arthur Kaluma for a great two years as a Creighton Blue Jay. He was the highest-ranked recruit in the Greg McDermott era. He was ranked 48th in the 247 composite rankings, so a top 50 recruit, 48th. So he kind of was, you know, he's kind of a groundbreaking recruit in some ways. And sometimes when you get one top 50 recruit, it makes it easier to get the next one and then the next one and the next one. And Kaluma was that that first one. So he was a big recruit for, for Creighton in a variety of ways. And he accomplished a lot in two years. The team won a lot with him being a major contributor, right? Two straight NCAA tournaments. Went to the Elite Eight. And his 24-point performance, he had 24 points, 12 rebounds against Kansas in the second round of the NCAA tournament his freshman year. Uh, That was a special performance. So for as much as I think it's a mistake if Kaluma actually does transfer to another college basketball program and plays college basketball next year, I still got to salute his two years at Creighton, and I got to wish him luck with his pro career. Big art. Major salute, big dog. All right, let's let's shift gears to to some Oscar football. You know, wh- one of the uh, one of the amazing things of, that can can play out or unfold with sports is things can change in a hurry, and all it takes is for a, a few things to happen a certain way, and all of, all of a sudden, a specific player becomes extremely important. Like, take 1994, for example, Nebraska football. A couple injuries occur, Tommy Frazier, Brooke Behringer. All of a sudden, Matt Terman, starting quarterback. And he's extremely important for a team trying to stay undefeated, undefeated and win a national title. Had to go to K-State and run the show. When the season started, or a month before that game, you weren't thinking, you know, Matt Terman going to have to be pretty important in a, in a, in a big conference game. Yeah. You, you think about last year for, for Husker Hoops couple of things unfold, a couple of injuries. Before you know it, Sam Hoiberg is the defensive stopper in crunch time for Nebraska, closing out a Big Ten conference game. I had to kind of say that out in my head as I was watching it because I did the game. It was Maryland, Nebraska. On I did the game on Fox. I'm sitting there with a headset, and I'm like, holy shit, Sam Hoiberg's guarding Jameer Young with the game on the line. Like I would have – Sam Hoiberg was – I mean, what was a guy that you didn't ever, ever anticipate of, of playing significant minutes at all. But that's how it unfolded. 
I say that to kind of say, and maybe I can only speak for myself on this, but I think a lot of people are probably vibing with me here. A few months ago, like, you know, February, probably. A few months ago, I felt like Nebraska's quarterback situation was most likely going to look like this. Casey Thompson next year, and then Dylan Riola for the next three years after that. That's how I was seeing the next, you know, three to four years of Nebraska's quarterback picture. Casey Thompson next year, Dylan Riola for two to three years after that. That's who I saw sitting in that quarterback seat for the next three, four years of the Matt Rule era. And you know what? I like that picture a lot. Casey Thompson, 24 years old, tons of experience. He can hold it down for a year to bridge the gap while Nebraska lands the number one recruit in the country and quarterback Dylan Raiola. Pretty good. Well, fast forward a couple of months now to mid-May, and Casey Thompson has transferred. He's not at Nebraska. And there are a lot of reports now that things have kind of cooled with Dylan Raiola in Nebraska and heated up for Dylan Raiola and Georgia. There are a lot of reports, a lot of crystal balls on 24-7 sports that predict Dylan Raiola is going to be a Georgia Bulldog. So now this quarterback situation for Nebraska looks like it's going to be most likely Jeff Sims for the next two years. And then after that, question mark. And listen, even though nobody is expecting Matt Rule to win the Big Ten next year and make the college football playoff in year two, these first two years still matter a ton. You got to get this thing off the ground. You got to lay the foundation. You got to establish the winning habits and winning culture. These first two seasons are really important, which means Jeff Sims is really important. So for me, it's just wild how in a span of two to three months, Sims, in my mind, was going to be the backup quarterback for the next two years behind Casey Thompson and then Dylan Riola, making Sims important, but not that important. And now, I could argue that as it currently stands today, May 10th, no player is more important to this thing getting rolling for Matt Rule at Nebraska than Jeff Sims is. If Sims is a bust, if Sims struggles... There's a pretty good chance these first two years are going to be a grind for sure next year at the very least. So sports are wild like this, man. Few decisions and events fall a certain way, and all of a sudden a player that maybe wasn't thought to be super important is now the most important player. That's Jeff Sims. 
that thought kind of just hit me on a bike ride the other day. Where I'm just, I'm, I'm riding, riding, and like, okay, wow, I need to mentally let it sink in that Jeff Sims is officially arguably the guy. He is the most important player in this launch for the rule era at Nebraska. And as we've seen before, the launch of a new era, the launch sometimes doesn't yield championships and banners, but more often than not, in order to eventually win championships and hang banners, you need a successful launch. The most important Husker for the Matt Rule era right now, in this moment, is Jeff Sims. That's a sentence I wasn't anticipating saying a couple of months ago. Speaking of quarterback, it was announced today, earlier uh, this afternoon, again, I'm taping this is May 10th, that Casey Thompson is officially headed to, he is going to transfer to, to FAU, to Florida Atlantic. And while there was some interest from schools like Auburn, he took a visit to Auburn. Uh, Notre Dame was interested as well. Indiana was interested. Houston were some other schools that were reportedly uh, interested in the Casey Thompson business. And while you you look at those, you know, if, if I were to say, okay, uh, Auburn, Notre Dame, Indiana, Houston, Florida Atlantic, pick the one that doesn't belong. You'd go uh, Florida Atlantic. And while I'd agree with you, I actually think when you think about Casey Thompson, his current situation, and what his career has been, I actually think it makes sense that Casey Thompson's heading to Florida Atlantic for a variety of reasons. First of all, I said this when Casey Thompson entered the transfer portal just a couple of weeks ago after the spring game. I think it's pretty clear. I don't think Casey Thompson is interested in any situation that is in a guarantee starting quarterback situation. He's not interested in it. Listen, he left Texas to find a guaranteed starting spot. And he found one in Nebraska. And in my opinion, I think he left Nebraska to find a guaranteed starting spot. And I think he's found one at Florida Atlantic. My guess is that's where the conversation started with him and these schools interested in him in the transfer portal. Okay, first things first. Hi, uh, Auburn, or hi, uh, Indiana. Am I going to start? Can you guarantee I'm going to start? You can't. Next. I'm not I mean, I wonder if that's kind of went down with rule. I think he sat down and was like, listen, I'm not going to BS you. Don't BS me. Am I going to start? Can you, can you look me in the eye and say it's my job? If you can't do that, I got to do what I got to do. I think that's what it, that's that's what this was, and and at Florida Atlantic he's going to definitely start. Again, keep in mind he's 24 years old, last year in college. This is it. He doesn't want to stand on the sideline for his last year of college football. He wants to play. So that that that's a big part of it. Then the other big part of it is obviously the fact that Casey Thompson is going to be reuniting with his old coach from Texas, Tom Herman, who. Which is, keep in mind, who he committed to and played for while at Texas initially. 
Casey Thompson knows him, trusts him, and obviously Tom Herman knows Casey Thompson and trusts him. And the other thing, too, is, you know, with Casey Thompson, he's done the big school thing. He's done the big brand thing. He's done He's done the big conferencing. He's, he's been at Texas. He's been at Nebraska. He's played for the huge big brand in the big conference. He's played in the Red River rivalry. He's played uh, uh, against, you know, against Big Ten teams. He's played against Iowa. He's played against these teams. He's done that. He's swam in those waters. He doesn't have to sit there and lay his head at night on his pillow and wonder what if. I wonder what it would be like if I was in the Big Ten. I wonder what it would be like to be in a power conference. He's done that. He's tested himself and experienced all that. So I just I think the fact that he's kind of been there, done that, for lack of a better term, with the big school where football is king and the power conference, I actually think that makes it easier for him to head to Florida Atlantic where it's obviously not that, right? So to me, just what you know, every situation it's you gotta you gotta evaluate it on its own. And for me, it makes it makes sense on a lot of levels for him to head to Florida Atlantic. Now, the only level it doesn't make sense is he's way better than that level, obviously. Like I really think he's a winning quarterback at the power conference level. And I was curious what he'd look like at a place like Auburn or maybe even another Big Ten school like I don't know, Northwestern or Indiana type. Because I've said this with Casey Thompson. Is he a Heisman Trophy caliber quarterback? No. But you can win with Casey Thompson as your quarterback, period. So that's the only element of this that I guess is is a little off. But overall, I think it makes sense. He wants a guaranteed starting spot. Florida Atlantic checks that box. He wants to trust and know the coach. Obviously, Florida Atlantic checks that box. He's been there, done that, been at the big blue blood type program, having started and played for Texas and Nebraska. So I think that frees him up in being willing to go to what is a perceived step down in terms of a a college football program. Now, I will say this. I think this is great news for Matt Rule for perception purposes. For perception purposes, I don't think Matt Rule needed to have Casey Thompson or wanted to have Casey Thompson go to Indiana and play great in the Big Ten and lead the Hoosiers to some big wins and a bowl win or something like that, or go to Auburn and light it up on some Saturdays in the SEC and get the Tigers to a big bowl game or whatever. In the perception world, it's just probably not a great look for Rule to have the quarterback that he wouldn't guarantee the starting job to go on and kill it somewhere else in a power conference, especially in the Big Ten. I mean, think about it. Right or wrong, right or wrong, and how it seemed in the moment, Joe Burrow going to LSU after wanting to come to Nebraska and Frost going, eh, no thanks. Right or wrong, how it seemed in the moment. Joe Burrow going to LSU and winning big, winning a title, then killing it in the NFL, always just landed poorly on Frost. It just did. Since obviously he could have had him and he chose Martinez instead. And I know I'm playing the perception game here, but I think on some level perception can matter. So I just, I think in a moment of honesty, 
My guess is Matt Rule saw the news that Casey Thompson was headed to to Florida Atlantic and not a Big Ten school or Auburn, and he said to himself, oh, thank God. Oh, thank God. Whew, thank God. Speaking of Matt Rule, so Matt Rule went on the uh, Husker Sports Network, had a long uh, long chat with Greg Sharp, um, a few day a few days ago and it, nothing too earth shattering was said um other than the fact that i just i found it interesting that once again in a public situation a public setting in the media matt rule praised the offensive line and backed the offensive line went out of his way Rule said that he would refuse to, quote, take shots at Nebraska's offensive line, really praised its commitment to uh, to the pipe, to honoring the tradition of the pipeline and playing at that standard. Went on to, to say, quote, there is no other position on our team more bought into being a Nebraska Cornhusker than those O-linemen. They work at a level I've never seen a group work at. So I hope everyone's rooting for them because they deeply, deeply care and they deeply want to make everyone proud. So, I mean, again, from basically the very first moment that Matt Rule could publicly get in front of a microphone or in front of a camera and pump up the offensive line, Matt Rule has done that. And he's done it consistently. Part of me really respects it. A coach, especially a college coach, should back his players and be positive about his team. But then there is also this part of me that thinks there is a fine line between supporting and having your players back with maybe, you know, with saying too much and maybe even putting more pressure on them. Because that position group was the most scrutinized, criticized position group last year. It, it, it was during the season for sure. I think clearly Matt Rule is, is aware of that. And even being aware of the performance and the scrutiny, Matt Rule decided to retain one coach from the previous staff, the offensive line coach. Donovan Rayola. Now, I still think a huge driving force behind that decision to retain Rayola as the O-line coach was the fact that his nephew is the number one quarterback in the country, Dylan Rayola, but we've been over that and talked about this. But when, when that position group struggles like it did last year, it gets criticized, right? And then... Matt Rule decides to keep that position coach. And so I'm just, I'm trying to analyze this. I almost think for Rule, there is this feeling to justify that decision publicly whenever he can. So for as much as it may be that he truly just believes in what he's seeing with the offensive line and actually thinks this group's going to be pretty good, or he's trying to give them confidence, that's certainly possible, or he's trying to justify the decision he made in what was really a on 
paper a perplexing one. And the O-line was not good last year. And Don Viola's resume is thin. It is a perplexing decision. So I think sometimes there's a, a part of him that's maybe subconsciously trying to justify that decision publicly whenever he can. So I think there there is that element of it. I Again, I, I can understand trying to infuse some confidence into that group, which I respect. But you know what? What's interesting to me, at least I can only say how some of these comments are landing to me. I think all this talking up the O-line and almost going out of, of his way to try to remove them from the microscope in a roundabout way almost slides them under the microscope more. Like they were already going to be on the microscope because of the offensive line and that's the lifeblood of a football team and given how they performed and all that stuff and the fact that it's, you know, you, you still have Rayola as the coach. Like they were already going to be under the microscope. But to me, hyping up, hyping them up and pumping them up now, I'm not, I'm not, like, if anything, it heightens my, I don't know, I don't want to say watchful eye. I don't, it just, it's, it, it almost slides them under the microscope more. It almost puts more eyeballs on them and more pressure on them. I've just found the consistent gassing up and talking up the offensive line to be interesting. So, you know, again, for me, subcon- I think it strikes me as subconsciously trying to publicly justify his retaining of Don and Rayola, and then also trying to speak the progression and development of that offensive line into existence. And I just think for me, the more he talks about them, the more I will maybe have a critical eye on them. That's just me. Now, again, this is it's fucking May 10th, right? I don't think this is a big deal. I've just found it's in- I've just found it interesting, you know? Like, it's like, I was trying to think of what an analogy would be to this. Like, if a restaurant owner just, a, a restaurant owner went out of its way to talk up their uh, uh, his garlic bread a bunch publicly, our garlic bread's fancy. I mean, I, I can't believe how good our garlic bread is. Our garlic bread is amazing. What, what we're doing with the garlic bread, what our chef has done with the garlic bread is amazing. The way that garlic bread looks on a daily basis is amazing. Well, when you sit down to eat that garlic bread, a standard has been created, and oftentimes that standard has now been elevated. So I think in a weird way, he's kind of added pressure to the offensive line. But I get it. I get trying to to back your players and infuse confidence into that unit when they've struggled and been criticized. I just think Matt Rule is so sharp and smart with what he says that I think almost everything he does and says is calculated. He's been consistent with the offensive line and what he says about him. From I think that very first signing day press conference, he got up there and, and said, listen, there's been this narrative around here that the offensive line has been the problem, and I disagree with that narrative. Like That was one of the first things he said. He, he has attacked this from day one. And maybe it's as simple as it's what he thinks and what he believes. But man, to see that unit, that position group, struggle like it did last year. And then think about them now with largely the same players and same position coach. To hear Matt Rule talk them up is just interesting to me. And I know I'm really curious 
to see how this group looks next season. A Herd at Sports Network production.